The fear of God is a good thing. It is a marvelous thing. In fact, there is no transformation in the Christian life unless there is fear. The very fact that you came to Jesus Christ, fear was involved in that. I am accountable. When it comes to fearing God, it's very important to understand what the Bible means by that. The picture should not be of an angry God ready to clobber us for disobedience. So how are we to understand fear as it relates to God? We'll examine that today here on Living a Legacy. Our speaker is Crawford Loretz, whose ministry background spans nearly 50 years. He currently heads the organization Beyond Our Generation, which seeks to mentor Christian leaders. Crawford's books include Unshaken, Your Marriage, Today and Tomorrow, A Passionate Commitment, and Leadership as an Identity. We're about to begin a new series titled Awestruck, and today we'll get through the first half of Crawford's message, Awestruck, The Fear of God. Let's get right to it. Our text is Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Here's Crawford Loritz on Living a Legacy. And you might be saying to yourself, now why in the world would you do a series on the fear of God? You can't read a book in the Bible where the fear of God is not present. It is all over the scriptures. And let me just ask you a question. Do you fear him? Now, uh, allow me, uh, hopefully this is purposeful rambling here. One of the things that's compelling me to speak about the fear of God right now is its apparent absence in many of our churches and of course in our culture. Now you have to understand something here. I do not believe personally, and I think it's wrong historically to call the United States of America a Christian nation in the same sense as we know what Christianity is about. That is a mistake. However, we are a nation that has been founded upon and built upon Christian principles and a God consciousness. And it was that God consciousness that even in the midst of unbelievers, um, there was a sense of awe and of respect and of regard toward a creator. Within the last 50 years or so, that has aggressively eroded. With the expelling of objective truth from public discourse has come the elevation of the individual. We celebrate our wants, we celebrate our needs. In fact, we no longer speak of objective truth. Everybody's talking about my truth. And so we're front and center. And with that has come an erosion of the concept of awe and wonder outside of anyone other than myself. That, that whole mindset has drifted over into our churches in terms of how we preach and how we teach. We preach messages that's targeted to be embraced by the individual. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, that we should apply the truth of God's word. If you heard me preach, you know that I try as best as I can to apply it and put the clothes of the, of the, of the congregation on. But we have taught people, we have taught people that truth is only powerful as long as it relates to where I am in my journey. 
So we string out a series of topical messages on how to do this and how to do that and how to do this and how to do that and how to do this and how to do that and how this works and how that works and how to make you happy, how to manage your money, how to do all these wonderful things. And the vertical side and the, the stuff that is transcendent and a God that is greater than myself is somehow uh, diminishingly at, at least missing in the way we approach Christianity and preach. So we have this kind of what I call evangelical narcissism that has taken hold of many of our churches. And when you add to that the whole concept of an untethered grace, what do I mean by that? We have, we have decided to brand grace and really take it away from what the Bible teaches about grace. You cannot understand grace until you understand guilt. You cannot appreciate grace until you appreciate guilt. You cannot appreciate mercy until you appreciate the fact that we're culpable, we're guilty. And so we preach these messages of an untethered acceptance without self-evaluation and realizing who we have offended. And it's frightening to me that this concept of the fear of God is being reduced, repackaged, because we don't want to offend people or frighten them. Now, the other thing that we need to understand is that there is this dastardly tendency to project upon God our own dysfunctions. What do you mean by that? So when I say the fear of God, some of us, some of us are thinking about the authority figures in our lives who have abused us, who have hurt us, who have done things to us, who have manipulated us, who have done all kinds of unimaginable things. And so when you see the, hear the fear of God, you project that dysfunction upon God. Well, God, you know, <laughs> the fear of God, God does not abuse people. God transforms people. And so the fear of God has nothing to do with God being abusive. It has to do with God being just. Now, having said all of that, we shut our ears off to language like fear. But the fear of God is a good thing. It is a marvelous thing. In fact, there is no transformation in the Christian life unless there is fear. The very fact that you came to Jesus Christ, fear was involved in that. There's a sense of guilt, a sense of shame. I did something wrong. I am accountable. And that sense of accountability is an expression and manifestation of the fear of God. Now, have you, ever, have you ever seen something that is so spectacular, so awe-inspiring, that it really left you speechless? You were struck by its wonderful danger. When I was a little boy, I grew up in the Northeast, I was a little boy, the first time I went to Niagara Falls, that's what hit me. You stand there, and all you hear are gasps, but not much conversation. Oh, wow, click, click, wow, wow. You're drawn toward it because it's massively beautiful, Part of you being drawn to that is a little bit of, man, that's dangerous. 
perhaps you peered over into the Grand Canyon. You're struck with the same thing. You go, oh, nobody has intelligent conversations at the Grand Canyon. It's, oh, wow, oh, you see, oh, man, oh. <laughs> or, or, or maybe you've been on a cruise in the, uh, the Inside Passage in Alaska, and you saw these humongous, amazing glaciers and these whales breaching in front of them. Wow. That's kind of, sort of what we mean by the fear of God. It's amazing wonder, massive, that takes our collective breath away. Now I'm gonna be doing three messages in this brief series, woefully inadequate here three messages just to whet our appetite. Today I'm going to talk about what it is. What is it? You know, in fact, I've borrowed from the title of the series. It's going to call Awestruck Today. And uh, the following, the next message will be what it does, meaning the blessing of fear. The Bible fear is put in blessing terms. And then the last message is how do I nurture it? Meaning, how do I make his fear my friend? It is a delightful gift in the Bible. It's a wonderful thing. Now, look at the screen here with me. At least 300 times in the Bible, the word fear is used in reference to God. Now, fear is used more than 300 times in the Bible. Fear is all, I mean, the fear not, fear not, fear not. It's all, but, but fear in terms of its, its relationship to God, uh, directly and indirectly referring to the fear of the Lord, is used 300 times, more than 300 times, in the entire Bible. Now further, I want to give a definition, and this is woefully inadequate. I got to tell you, I, man, you know, there are extremes. When you read uh, commentaries and other people and their insights on the fear of God, uh, you, you find them going the spectrum. And I struggled with, uh, with a healthy definition of fear, and so I've come up with my own uh, based upon my study of, of the fear of the Lord, the fear of God. And here's, here's my definition, and I'm not really saying that I'm completely sold on this, because as you're going to see in a few moments, trying to describe the fear of God and trying to give a, a definition of what the fear of the Lord means is almost impossible. But here you have it, look at it with me on the screen. The fear of the Lord is a comprehensive sense of awe and profound respect for the majesty and power of God. It is a comprehensive sense of awe and profound respect for the majesty and the power of God. Yes, even that's inadequate, and thus the reason why I'm going to Isaiah chapter 6, I think the description of fear in the Bible, the description of an encounter with God will give us a better sense of the weightiness of the subject matter and what it really, what it really means. We need to fear him, church. We need to fear him. And the reason why some of us are not changing in our walk in relationship with God, quite frankly, is because we don't fear the Lord. And we need to. We need to. Now, I want to say a word about this, these coup, two coexisting truths in the Bible. Part of our problem when we, make the, the, we try to define things is that we pit truths against one another when they're not pitted against one another in the Bible. We make paradoxes out of things that are not really paradoxes. Or we make things competitive that are not really competitive. 
For example, here's the problem. We, we make the fear of the Lord and the love of God, we make the fear of God and the love of God uh, competing. They're not competing. They don't compete with one another. They're not even paradoxes. We fear God because we love God, and we fear God because God loves us. You gotta be careful of defining love as permission in the Bible. Love and grace are not permission in the Bible, and God's loving kindness toward us does not mean that he has eradicated everything else about his nature. That's not true. He moves toward us in love, but he also moves toward us in power. He expects us to be uh, submissive to him. So for God to love us and yet require us to fear him is not a contradiction in terms. God is tender and loving, but he, is, he, he also is to be revered, held in awe with an appreciation of his terrorizing power. The best way I can describe this, and forgive this kind of weak illustration here, but I, I just can't get the movie Kong out of my mind. Now think about this. There's this one scene in the movie where powerful King Kong has this woman in his hand, and he gently holds on to her. And at the same time as he's holding on to her and protecting her and, and, and not letting her slip and not crushing her with his own power, he is violently destroying that which comes up against her. And what you have to understand, you have to see it from the woman's eyes. She was lovingly protected, but at the same time, she's experiencing the terrorizing power that's the reason why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 31, said, hold up, man. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So you have to see these things together. He is loving and compassionate, but don't pass him off as weak. And somehow or another, he won't operate from that side of his nature. There can be no intimacy with God unless we fear him. None. Uh, Psalm 25, verse 14, it says the friendship of the Lord, actually the word friendship in Hebrew could have been translated, the intimate things of the Lord is for those who fear him. He makes known to them his covenant. And we're actually gonna see this as we wander through this narrative in Isaiah chapter six that God discloses who he is to those who fear him. Those who fear him. He opens up his heart. He gives insight. He gives direction. He unfolds his purpose and plan for those who fear him. I'm not saying that this is the answer, but for some of us who are struggling, maybe you don't know what God wants you to do. You've been praying about it. You've been talking about it. You've been frustrated about it. Let me ask you the question, do you fear God? Do you fear him? The issue is not whether or not God has a speech impediment. He doesn't. The issue may have to do with the condition of my heart and my reverence toward him. There are moments in our lives where God won't shout to us. You got to get close to him to hear his whisper. For well, the intimate things, 
belong to those who fear him. So what happens to us when we encounter God? What happens to us? What goes on? When we encounter God, we are awestruck. We are awestruck. In the Bible, there's no one who stands tall in the presence of God. When God reveals himself throughout the Bible, there's no people standing up, you know, when God reveals himself, everybody's on flat on their faces. <laughs> when they come in his presence, they're standing saying, oh, you know, God, listen, I know you helped me do this, and I just kind of think, this is what I bring to the table. No, there's none of that nonsense. There's none of that talk there. When we encounter God, something happens to us. And in this narrative here, in Isaiah chapter six, one, one through uh, eight, uh, I want to suggest that in this brief narrative, there are four scenes. Isaiah, Isaiah has, is, is, is in the presence of God, and you got to look at what takes place to Isaiah as he is struck with the awesome presence of our great God, this incredible vision. I'll give you the outline, and then we put some meat on the, on, on the skeleton here. It moves this way. Number one is what he saw. Secondly, is what he felt. Thirdly, is what he experienced. And fourthly, is what he did. And by the way, that is, should be the outline of our intimate times with the Lord. Lord, what do you see? What do you feel? What do you experience? And what will you do? And this is a process that God takes Isaiah through. Number one, what did Isaiah see? Listen to these words. Verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Don't skip over that. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Just that expression summarizes the grief that it hit Isaiah. The significance or import of this is that Uzziah had reigned for 52 years in Judah. 52 years he had reigned in Judah. God had used Uzziah in extraordinary ways. Programs for peace and prosperity had, had been initiated through Uzziah. It is safe to say that revival in Judah took place through Uzziah and his faithfulness to the Lord. Now, I want you to remember this. Check this out. Unfortunately, as is the case today, unless there's corresponding intentional brokenness and humility when God uses us, we will own what he does as a statement of our significance. And that is exactly what happened to Uzziah. It just started building up in him, and God used him, God used him, God used him, God used him. He thought it was normative, he thought it was all about him and this kind of thing. And then one day, you know, he goes into the temple, he got impatient, he was gonna offer sacrifice, and the priest said, please don't do that, don't do that. God called you to be king. He didn't call you to be a priest, and he got ticked off. It's sort of like it was a head case. Wait, what do you mean? Don't you know all the things that I accomplished here, all of these reforms, all the stuff that's taking place here, it was because of me? And he trespassed, and he was stricken with leprosy, and he died. Because God uses you does not necessarily mean, well, it doesn't mean that you're perfect. You've got to give God the glory. And Isaiah, for part of that time, was a contemporary with Uzziah. And Isaiah's heart is broken because he had seen how God had used Uzziah. And, he's, and it's almost as if he said, this was unnecessary, man. You knew what God did. Why you do this, buddy? 
And so he comes into the temple, as most scholars believe, and he's mourning. And when he gets there, he's struck with this incredible, unbelievable vision of God. So what did he see? The first thing that Isaiah saw is that he saw the Lord. He saw the Lord. He says, in the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I don't mean to get so granular here, but this is precious stuff. He saw the Lord. He saw the Lord. I think there's a little bit of an implication here. Uzziah may have been a tad bit of a distraction. Maybe Isaiah's grief had just sort of paralyzed him. And maybe it's saying, well, how could it be this great leader, this great man, this man that had, had everything, and God did well, What happened to him? But then he sees the Lord. He sees the Lord. What does he see? Well, he comes to understand that there may have been confusion, heartache, and shame on the earth, but there was no shame or failure in heaven. Our glorious God is still on his throne. And although people fail, great people, folks that discipled you maybe, people that preached and taught the Bible to you maybe, folks that poured into your life, folks that helped you overcome, and only to find out that they're mired in sin, you go, what in the world is wrong? What you have to understand is that people will fail, people will sin, people will let you down, but God is unaffected by our maladies. He saw the Lord. What was he doing? Well, he was seated on a throne. Seated on a throne. <laughs> I love that. That, that. that implies that he's sovereign and in control. He is there. He is in control. Pain, tragedies, blessing, whatever. God is on his throne and he is in control. I may not understand it. I can't, I don't, you know, I'm, I wish he would act in a different way sometimes. But it does not mean that he's out of touch. He's on his throne. Seated on the throne, high and lifted up, implies that he's, he's beyond where we are. He's beyond where we are. He is exalted. And then thirdly, it says the train, or, or actually, uh, it could have been translated, the hem of his robe filled the temple. Implies royalty and majesty, but also implies that he cannot be contained. I think there's a, a little bit of a play here. If you understand the temple in the Old Testament, the presence of God, the, the very presence of God was in the Holy of Holies. But here he says, Isaiah says, when I see this vision of, of our great God high and lifted up on, on the throne and his train filling the temple, it spills over outside of the Holy of Holies. It's in the area where the Gentiles come. It's everywhere. The whole idea is that you cannot contain God. You cannot restrict God. An interesting applicational point is that, you know, don't treat God as if he doesn't know what's going on. Crawford Loretz, our speaker here on Living a Legacy. And that was part one of a message titled, Awestruck, the Fear of God. We're at the very beginning of a new series called Awestruck. And today's text was Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. If you weren't able to join us for all of the message, hear it in its entirety on our website, livingalegacy.org, livingalegacy.org. You can also take some of Crawford's messages with you in your audio player. Look for the MP3 link on the website where you can download many of Crawford's messages for free. It's the MP3 link at livingalegacy.org. Always good to hear how God is using these messages in your life. Take a moment to write to us and look for the Contact Us link on the website. 
Well, next week, more about what it means to fear God. Hope you'll be right back here with us. For Crawford Loritz, I'm Bill Davis. Thanks for joining us today. This program is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.